Hey, Fidelity. What's it cost to invest with the Fidelity app? Start with as little as $1 with no account fees or trade commissions on U.S. stocks and ETFs. Hmm, that's music to my ears. I can only talk. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Zero account fees apply to retail brokerage accounts only. Zero dollar commission applies to online U.S. equity trades and ETFs and retail Fidelity accounts. Sell order assessment fee not included. Some account types and securities excluded. Details at fidelity.com slash commissions. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Hey everyone, this is Katie Mack, your friendly neighborhood cosmologist and connoisseur of cosmic catastrophes. It's been a while since I've talked to you on ologies, and a lot of things have been happening. Uh, Since that time, I have published a book called The End of Everything, Astrophysically Speaking, which is all about different ways the universe might end and what those would look like, and I've moved to a new place. When I recorded this I was just about to start a job at North Carolina State University, where I was an assistant professor of physics, and about a year ago I moved to the Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics in Ontario, Canada, and there I have a really cool job title, which is the Hawking Chair in Cosmology and Science Communication. And at the Perimeter Institute I continue my research on dark matter, and I work on a number of other early universe kinds of questions, and I do a bunch of public engagement, outreach, things like that. I give a lot of talks, I do radio things, and I'm working on a new book which will come out in a couple years that's about particle physics. So this episode is an episode from 2017, the end of 2017, and a lot has happened in physics since then. In terms of what I talked about on the episode, There's a bit of an update for the LIGO experiment. Uh, At the time, there were just a handful of detections of black holes colliding in other galaxies, which is just amazing. But now there have been something like 90 detections of black holes colliding in other galaxies. There will be some discussion in the episode about gravitational waves that we see from those. Another thing that we talked about is supermassive black holes and what they would look like if you could see them. And in the movie Interstellar, there was a simulation of what that would look like since then. Astronomers have actually seen that. They've actually seen the light from stuff falling into black holes and the black hole shadow that's produced when the light gets eaten by the black holes. So there's an experiment called the Event Horizon Telescope Project, um, where astronomers basically linked together telescopes all over the world and created an image of a couple of supermassive black holes. So yeah, really exciting stuff. Check out those things, and I hope you enjoy this little blast from the past of cosmology. Hey, welcome to Ologies. I'm your Allie Ward, the host. Now, each week I sit down with an ologist. I ask, why do they love what they do? What is your deal? What should we know about it? And this week we cover 
the whole fucking universe, which has existed and it's expanding and you're floating in it and you're made out of particles and matter and forces we don't even understand. And maybe there are multiverses and is this reality? And what are you doing here? And does anything matter? And of course it does. But should you be afraid of wearing bright lipstick or dancing in public? Probably not. No, in the scope of things. And the scope of things is really, it's giant. It's called cosmology. Now, if you think that you listened to this episode already because you learned some stuff about beard care and face wash, think again, suckers. That was cosmetology. This week is cosmology, the study of the cosmos. And so when I say this episode is like everything, it's actually everything. It's the whole universe. It's, uh, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's so much. It's a two-parter. It's a twofer. So this week, we'll get the nuts and bolts of what astrophysics is. And after about an hour, you will walk away cocktail party literate on goddamn astrophysics. Kind of. I don't know. I'm learning here with you. Of all the episodes I've done, this was probably the one I knew the least about. So let's learn together, shall we? Part two of this next week are your questions submitted via Patreon and the Ologies podcast Facebook group. Y'all had good ones. Next week, we'll address them. Now, the etymology of cosmology. Cosmos, with a K, is the kicky little Greek word for world or order. So cosmology is a study of planets and such, sure. But also why and what and how, where, what, huh? It's the study of what? This week's cosmologist is someone I've had a fawning Twitter fascination with for a while. And I met through a group of science friends I love, known to some as the Nerd Brigade, or kind of like a gang, but with a website. But I was always kind of intimidated by her because she is, in her own words, an academic nomad. And she continent hops while studying particle physics and black holes and gravitational waves. And she hangs out with Stephen Hawking. So when I met her through friends, I usually just sat at brunch like a barnacle and tried to look away when she caught me staring at her. So I asked her to be on the podcast. She said yes. And I immediately started perspiring. So she came to my apartment. We sat down and my usual hour interview stretched to almost two, hence the two-parter, hours before she politely reminded me that we were supposed to be meeting people for a movie and we should stop. I'm so, so glad we did this podcast because I got to know her even better as a friend, which y'all, I'm going to be cheesy and say it's a true honor. So in this episode, you'll learn about the things that make you, you, and the stars that exploded to make the things that make you, you, and the scale of our existence in space, and what it feels like to be heckled by Stephen Hawking, and if this is real life, and if astrophysicists are just like making bullshit up that the rest of us just accept because we're like, man, I don't even know how to read these equations, so okay. So you'll get, at the very least, a loose grasp on just the whole of existence and maybe steal yourself to be the biggest you you want to be. And more importantly, get to know better one of the world's finest voices in cosmology. You know her as Astro Katie on Twitter, aka astrophysicist Katie Mack. Take me back yeah. 
to defining some stuff because as a layman, mm-hmm. as a laywoman over here, mm-hmm. a lay human, yes, I don't know the difference between a physicist, an astrophysicist, a particle physicist, an experimentalist, yeah. a cosmologist, and an astronomer. I don't know what those are. And I'm right. either going to have to Wikipedia this, or I can have <laughs> you give me a rundown. Um, so these things are, uh, they're a little bit like um, fluid, these definitions. Uh, so astronomer is basically somebody who studies space in some way and usually when people say astronomer versus astrophysicist usually astronomer is like more on the observational side um or sort of describing stuff in space astrophysicist is more about like trying to understand how the physics of the thing in space works so you can be an astrophysicist trying to understand how galaxies form for example Mm -hmm. and so you're applying physics to this stuff in space Mm -hmm. um if you're a particle physicist, you're working on, like, how particle interactions work. Uh, so, like, you know, atom smashers and things, uh, Large Hadron Collider, Higgs boson. Um, usually, I mean, the, 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 like, classic particle experiment is you take two particles and you smash them together and you see what comes out. Uh-huh. Um, that's what the Large Hadron Collider is doing. Now, the LHC, that's what you call the Large Hadron Collider when y'all are tight. So, you've maybe heard of it. You kind of know, like, it's a thing in Europe, maybe? Has something to do with atoms? I looked into it. The Large Hadron Collider is located near the France-Switzerland border, and it's a circular tunnel. It's over 500 feet deep in some parts, and it's 17 miles around. It is the largest machine in the world. So this thing consists of over 1,200 magnets, and they're cooled to a temperature colder than outer space. And then the magnets accelerate protons to almost the speed of light, and then the protons are bashed together. It's very punk rock, very expensive. The LHC was mostly completed in 2008. Over 10,000 scientists and engineers worked on it. Now, in photos, it looks kind of like a a giant, well-lit subway tunnel, uh, but with less pee and rats. If you're like, I can't remember what a proton is because I'm not required to anymore. I'm not in school. Don't worry. Neither did I. I had to Google like, how does an atom work? I forgot. So I'll brush you up. So matter is stuff and molecules are some atoms stuck together. Atoms are made of a nucleus, which is a little cluster of neutrons and protons. Protons have a positive charge, pro. Electrons have an equal negative charge, and electrons are bebopping, zooming around, whirling dervish style outside of the nucleus. So the neutrons and protons, which are the ones that are just cuddling in the nucleus, those are made of smaller particles called quarks. And the quarks come in a couple different varieties. So what gives these particles their mass? What are they? Where do they come from? We've got all these little tiny things that make up matter. Okay, so I heard it explained that there's a field called the Higgs field. It's named after one alive and well Scotsman physicist named Peter Higgs. And how a particle interacts with the Higgs field gives it its mass. Kind of like drag in water. So Higgs bosons are particles. They're an excitation of the Higgs field. It's kind of like a drop of water splashing from an ocean. So the Large Hadron Collider smashed protons together to see if they could prove that the Higgs boson exists. And guess what, bitches, it does. 
You're not bitches. Some people call this the God particle because it's so fundamental to all matter in the universe. Does Dr. Higgs like this name? No, he's an atheist. He thinks it sucks. And the guy who coined it, the God particle, actually wanted to call it the goddamn particle, but his publisher made him change it in a book. So the Large Hadron Collider, one of the things it does, smashes these protons together into smaller things to figure out why matter has mass. There you go. Also, the Large Hadron Collider accidentally has its name spelled wrong on its own website as Large Hardon Collider. Once would be mortifying, but like, what if they did it more than once, like twice or five times? That's impossible. Is it? Because a search on their site revealed they'd spelled it Large Hardon Collider 165 times. Thank God, Particle, for that. That's just precious. So whenever you're like, I don't understand this stuff. Maybe I'm not smart enough. Just think, someone typed in Large Hardon Collider over 150 times. And they built the thing. So how else do people figure this shit out about very important things that we can't see? But there are other ways to do particle physics, uh, measuring how particles interact with each other, um, throwing particles at other things, um, accelerating stuff and seeing what happens, all of that kind of stuff on the experimental side. And on the theory side, it's a lot about trying to understand like the fundamental forces of nature. So like how, um, how atoms hold together, how, um, you know, particles can change into other particles in certain conditions, um, how gravity fits into all that, which it doesn't at the moment, theoretically. Okay. Um, I mean, it doesn't? It's it's, it's very hard to get gravity and particle physics to work together. This is kind of, yeah, it's, it's sort of, this may be another topic, but like, this is the, the reason string theory was invented. Real quick. What is string theory? Well, in a very cork sized, tiny nutshell, the premise of string theory is that Basic objects are not point-like, but they're string-like. So a quark might be made of a loop that kind of vibrates and moves around. Every kind of particle is like a different wiggly string. So why does anyone care? Why are people so horny for string theory? Well, number one, it's from the 80s. And maybe this is like the scrunchie of particle physics. I don't know. More importantly, string theory is a theory that works with both Einstein's general relativity and that... Mr. Einstein posed that what we perceive as the force of gravity is is the curvature of space and time. More on that in a minute. And quantum mechanics, which is the physics of the tiniest building blocks that exist. So remember those quarks that made up protons and neutrons? What are those made of? Maybe these string-like loops of matter. Every time I hear string theory mentioned, I think of string cheese. I can't not. And I was writing and researching this episode, and my I found myself on a website like 2.30 in the morning learning that string cheese, as we know it, was invented in Wisconsin in 1976. And the way they get it to string is to heat it to 140 degrees Fahrenheit, and that aligns all the milk proteins. Also, the first iterations of string cheese were bigger and chunkier and served to drunks in bars. Should we get back to physics? Okay, I'm sorry. And this is, like, the big question in physics is that, like, so there there are a a few sort of fundamental forces of nature, right? There's electromagnetism, Mm -hmm. um, there's, that, and that's, like, light and, um, you know, like, static cling and and all of those kinds of things, right? And and magnetism. 
And then there's the weak nuclear force, which has to do with like how particles decay in radioactivity, that kind of thing, Ooh. and how particles can change into other particles under certain conditions. There's the strong nuclear force, and that holds particles together in the centers of atoms. Okay. Um, and those all kind of make sense together theoretically. Like you can write down equations that make those all fit in some way, um, more or less. When Katie says you can write down equations that make those all fit, I appreciate her being inclusive with the second person, but I, I cannot write down equations to make those all fit in some way. I cannot do that. But then there's gravity, and gravity just doesn't follow any of the same rules. <laughs> it's like, it, it's very hard to put together a theory that includes those, the, the fundamental forces of particle physics and gravity. So, like. So is gravity like the bad boy in a teen drama? It's just like, <laughs> it's we're just, just not following any rules? It's weird. It's like, like gravity is all about space time, mm -hmm. you know? So gravity, like, so the theory of gravity that we have is Einstein's theory of relativity. So general relativity. This is the theory of gravity where... Okay, get ready. Here's Einstein. Here's how the universe of which you are a part works. The, ba the basic picture is that you can think of space as this malleable thing. And if you have something that has mass, it creates like a dent in space. It sort of bends space around it. Okay. Um, and uh, and so other things moving past will respond to that and like fall into that dent. And that's like how gravitational attraction works. You can think of it oh. in this geometric way. Okay. And it works really well, like geometrically to think of it like that. But then there are fundamental principles that happen in that, like the speed of light as a limiting factor and all sorts of things like that. So only certain paths things can follow and, and everything. But then the particle physics stuff, like all the equations of particle physics are done without thinking about gravity because on those scales like gravity isn't important it's a really really weak force okay um but also like there are the way that the particle physics is is formulated in the standard model of particle physics which is what we use to talk about all these interactions um it doesn't have the same like it doesn't follow the same rules as gravity like there are ways in which the whole like speed of light thing is violated in one way that you can formulate how particles move around, um, which is kind of like, there's kind of like, there's this way of formulating it where a particle going from point A to point B passes through every possible path on the way between point A and point B. And it's only by, by using that idea that mm -hmm. you get the right answer for how that particle is moving in the particle physics point of view. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't work with relativity. Um, so there are a couple of things like that where, like, quantum mechanics and relativity just do not like each other. Um, really? And, and it gets especially uh, problematic when you get to black hole, because a black hole is this very, like, intense gravitational system. Mm -hmm. It's basically a dent in space-time that's so deep that, like, everything falls into it if it gets close enough. Um, but at the edge of a black hole, the event horizon, you have this weird quantum mechanical thing happening where you can have like particles evaporating off of it. And that sets like a sort of scale of the black hole. And 
that means there's quantum mechanics happening in a strong gravitational system, and then just everything breaks. <laughs> it just goes totally haywire, because um, if you look at it from a gravitational point of view, like a relativity point of view, you should see nothing at all interesting happening when you when you fall into the black hole, like aside from like you're you're killed by the gravity. Right. But like you don't see like nothing weird happens when you pass the horizon, but from a particle physics point of view, like there there might be like this like firewall, like there might be like a sort of like boundary of intense radiation there because of the way you have to think about how the particle physics works. This is complicated story but um but basically there's I mean, like astrophysics typically <laughs> is yeah i'm not explaining it very well um but the, but basically like like basically when you get to that point when you have a black hole that has an a, a evaporation happening where particles are coming off the edge of the event horizon um one way of looking at it says that 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 means that Whatever you fall through into the black hole, you can't ever find out what it was. That information is destroyed. But quantum mechanics, uh, like the particle point of view, says you can't do that, and so there has to be some kind of loophole. And then gravity doesn't like that, and you just you just end up with chaos. And so there's this there's this um, big problem called the black hole uh, information paradox, which has been mm -hmm. around forever. And every once in a while, somebody's like, "Oh, I solved it," and then it's really complicated and People don't really understand how that works. Has anyone actually solved that? I mean, I... So, technically, I'm just not qualified to know that for sure, because it requires understanding quantum gravity in a way that I do not. Mm -hmm. um, but there have been some solutions suggested, but in, in, in general, there's still a lot of discussion. Now, um, so, I don't know. Okay, wait. So, what does a cosmologist do? A cosmologist just means you study... The universe as a whole, right? Okay. So you study maybe the beginning of the universe, the end of the universe, how it changes over time. Um, but you can be a physicist cosmologist or an astronomer cosmologist, and those are different. Oh. Um, and, and it's culturally different. Like, but the, so if you're, if you're a physicist, if you, if you hang out with particle physics people and mm -hmm. you say you're a cosmologist, then, then the implication is that you work on like the, the beginning of the universe and the forces of nature and um, maybe the end of the universe, uh, something like that. If you hang out with astrophysicists and you say you're a cosmologist, then you just study things that are really far away. <laughs> or you study, you know, um, some something, you know, more fundamental. But like you can be a cosmologist in astrophysics and you're a cosmologist because you study very, very distant galaxies. The reason that counts as cosmology is because that means you're studying the very distant past of the universe. So there are different flavors of cosmology, but they're all kind of linked, at least in my opinion, by like, oh, where are we? What are we? What are we made of? AKA, it's a branch of astronomy that involves the origin and evolution of the universe. That's a less panicky way to put it. Oh. And so... So that so then you're studying like how the universe has changed over time. So there are kind of different ways of doing it, and I've done all of those different kinds of cosmology, I guess, because um, I've spent my time kind of bouncing back and forth between the particle physics and the astrophysics communities. So I've worked on you know the the Big Bang and like theories of the early universe, and I've worked on distant galaxies and how galaxies form, and I've worked on black holes and weird stuff like cosmic strings um, mm -hmm. and just 
all sorts of things. What is a cosmic string? A cosmic string is kind of like a, uh, a sort of line or wiggly line of energy that stretches across the cosmos. It might not exist, probably doesn't exist, but there could be this like whole network of strings of like, it's, it's, it's kind of like if you think of like a black hole, but you like stretch it out across the whole universe, mm-hmm. you get, it's kind of like that. Um, what does it do? What it so really interesting thing. So if you have two cosmic strings and they cross each other, um, they collide. They can like reconnect in a different way. So you can have two cosmic strings that are about to collide, and then they they like change so that now you have two sort of loops of cosmic strings that are going in opposite directions. Like so, they sort of pass through each other by branching off in this weird way. So cosmic strings may or may not exist. Now, if they do exist, some theorists have used them to maybe sketch out some stuff about time travel. Please figure that out. Please fix some stuff. Thank you. And you can make a loop of cosmic string, and then that loop of cosmic string will, like, wiggle around and make uh, gravitational radiation and um, and uh, disappear in into nothingness. And if you have a cosmic string, like... If you have a cosmic string between you and some distant galaxy, um, then you might see two pictures of that galaxy because it like splits the space kind of. What? It's really cool. Um, now, how much do you think about all of this in your day to day life, and like when you're deciding if you should upgrade your rental car, and like if you should cut bangs, and what happens to your molecules after you die? Like, how much <laughs> do you let this kind of get to your own existence? Uh, yeah. Somebody asked me that the other day, like how much do I, like, get sort of just overwhelmed by these ideas or whatever? Um, It's not very often. Like, most of the time, this is, like, this is fun stuff to work on, but, like, most of the time, it it feels more like some kind of combination of science fiction and a fun puzzle, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, So, like, I'm trying to solve a problem, I'm trying to calculate something, uh, I'm trying to come up with a new idea for how to do something, and so it's like a puzzle. It's like some kind of neat thing to work out, and I don't think of it as connecting to my own life or existence, because it's way far away or way in the past or, you know, probably doesn't exist or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. but then every once in a while, like, I'll be, I'll be thinking about this stuff and I'll be like, oh my God, like, there's, <laughs> that stuff is out there. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I'll be thinking about black holes or gravitational waves or, like, the inflation period in the early universe or something like that. And I'll be like, I'll have to, like, hold on to something and be like, oh God. <laughs> because these are huge, like, mind-bendingly intense forces and massive things and like the kinds of energies and the kinds of like force and and just i don't know the explosions and everything it's just we cannot comprehend this stuff i mean the earth is is really tiny and really unimportant like in Mm -hmm. a big way so so okay you know there's there's this um there's this famous um, photograph, uh, the pale blue dot. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. So this is a picture that was taken by the Voyager spacecraft. So the pale blue dot photo was taken on Valentine's Day in 1990 as Voyager 1 was leaving the solar system. It was like, bye-bye, I'm out. And astronomer Carl Sagan said, yo, let's turn that lens around. Let's take a pic of all of us far away. What do you say? Might as well. And it was 3.7 billion miles away. It's the galaxy's longest range selfie. This photo itself, it looks like you accidentally took like a blurry 
image of a few Christmas lights and there was like a speck of dust on your lens. Those lights are just a few scattered rays of sun and someone would have to point out that that dust is our planet. It is such a tiny speck. And I'll let Carl Sagan put this in context. He's the pro here. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Sometimes when I give talks about cosmology, I'll end with this picture and I'll be like, you know, just thinking about how vast the universe is and how really insignificant we are. And it's and the insignificance is is even deeper than just what you see from that picture. Because in that picture, you see, like, there's a whole lot of empty space, and then there's a little tiny rock. Yeah. And we're on that little tiny rock, right? Oh, boy. And there's a lot of space. But it's even worse than that. Because, <laughs> because like, not only are we not the center of, like, the universe or a galaxy or a solar system or anything like that, the matter that we're made of is also really unimportant. Because, because like, like just the kind of stuff that we are and that we can understand and interact with, regular matter, is like 5% of the universe. So most of the universe is something called dark energy that we really don't understand, but it's some sort of mysterious stuff that's making the universe expand faster and faster, and it's going to take over eventually. And then there's dark matter, which is some kind of invisible matter that is most of what the galaxy is made of, and most of what all galaxies are made of. So like our galaxy, you know, we think of it as like this pretty disk of stars, but it's actually in embedded in this invisible blob of extra stuff that we can't see, and that blob is way bigger than the stuff that we can actually see. So dark matter is like 85% of the matter in the universe or something like that. Oh my god. And then dark energy is like 70% of all of the stuff in the universe. <gasps> like so so then we're this like little tiny 5% slice and that's just the kind of matter <sighs> that we can understand, that we can do experiments on, that we can see or touch or interact with in any reasonable way. And then it's like not only <laughs> Not only are we like a tiny speck of dust on a tiny speck of dust, like, who's, you know, like, we are so insignificant, like, the universe doesn't even, it doesn't even matter that we're, like, that our kind of stuff is there, you know? The best thing about this conversation is, yeah, I'm, I'm having it with a cosmologist and, like, an astrophysicist, but I could also be having the same conversation with any of my college roommates who had, like, a seven-foot <laughs> bong in the, in the garage when astrophysicists and cosmologists get together yeah is it just kind of like a round robin of like stoner <laughs> existentialism like because i feel like there's such a fine line like and then you're either incredibly incredibly 
smart and thoughtful and knowledgeable about this stuff or you're just like you've just numbed yourself enough where you allow yourself to think about it and then in this like the bell curve there's this big wide swath of people who are like I can't even think about it it's too much you know I mean so when when I do get together with other cosmologists and we talk shop it's usually very very technical mm-hmm. and so we don't get into this stuff at all like we're it's it's usually you know we're just talking about we're talking in, in a lot of jargon about like some measurement or something and we're throwing out numbers and we're trying to like figure out like is this a reasonable measurement to make or whatever or like what what kind of plot can we make to to um you know to illustrate this point or what kind of calculation should we do or like what's the important variable it it would not be interesting to somebody who is not in the field um so it's really only when i'm talking about people who are not in cosmology where like I have these moments of like, oh God, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Um, but the thing, I mean, but it's it's a little bit dangerous to talk about that stuff though, because then sometimes people get the idea that we really are just kind of sitting around making stuff up, you know, mm-hmm. like, and so then people think like, oh, I can be a cosmologist. Like, what if the universe is shaped like a football, you know? Right. And I think that that the the sort of disconnect there is that. Like, the ideas themselves, if they're not backed up by the data or by, like, a very rigorous model, are really not that important. Mm-hmm. Um, like, once we have data and we have some kind of th- unifying theory that says that this is probably the way things are, then it's, like, super cool, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but if somebody had said, like, oh, you know, maybe the universe is like this, like, we don't really know what to do with that, and mm-hmm. it does, it's not really helpful until, you can't just spitball, like yeah, 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 exactly. Like, um, like you have to. It has to be connected to something we can test or 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 write down mathematically, or else it just it it's kind of not helpful. Which right. it, which is you know it's a bummer. But but once you do have the sort of mathematical tools and stuff, and you can speak that language, you know, um, then you can get really creative, and then you can just do really fun things. Um, so like I have an, ex- I have a, a project I'm working on that has to do with, um, I have a few interesting projects actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have one, so here's one that, that, so that could be fun. So okay. it has to do with black holes and galaxies and the bending of space. Okay. So, um, so every time there's a massive object, it bends space around it. And so that means that light, when it goes past, bends around. So like a lens, like the massive object acts like a lens for light. And so light gets bent around. So there's this way to study like what galaxies are made of by having a very bright light behind the galaxy, like really far away, mm-hmm. and looking at how that light like bends around inside that galaxy and like how the light fluctuates as things move and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's called gravitational microlensing in this case, the, the kind of thing I'm working on. But the details aren't important, but it's, it's, um, it's this thing where like the thing that's making the bright light is also a black hole. Um, because it turns out when you have a supermassive black hole, like billions of times as massive as the sun, um, those things can be pulling matter into themselves and that matter lights up like a whirlpool of, of stuff. What? And it can make this incredibly bright light that you can see like across the universe. And so, so we use that as like a backlight <laughs> to study the stuff in a more nearby galaxy what? to find out how many black holes there are in that galaxy. So black holes make light? That, Sometimes, is yeah. Is that supposed to be confusing? Yeah, it's like, I think, I mean, I think it's like, 
It's one of these things. It's like the biggest misconception about black holes is that they're dark. Usually they're not. Like what? the ones we know about are usually not dark. And it's, it's, yeah, it's because they're not, it's, it's because like technically the black hole itself can't be seen, but it's doing so much that it like affects everything around it. And so usually you can see black holes because they're like really destructive and like the stuff is falling into them. Kind of like if you, um, if you had a, a drain at the bottom of a bathtub, uh-huh. um, like you might not be able to see the drain through like the you know bubbles or something, but you can mm-hmm. see that there's like a, a whirlpool of stuff falling in at that point. Oh man! And that's how we see black holes in space. Usually, is we see that they're they're pulling in a lot of matter, and so they li- that matter lights up, <gasps> and so once it goes into the black hole, we can't see it. But it spends a lot of time whirling around really fast. It's like an intergalactic uh, garbage disposal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, and it can be. It's some of the brightest things in the universe are, are black holes. We call them quasars when they're when they're the supermassive ones and they're pulling matter in um, <gasps> like that. And and we have so so that's like um, those are for black holes that are like millions or billions of times as massive as the sun. And how far away are those puppies? All right. Well. Um, Okay, supermassive black holes, the, one I, the ones I was just talking about, millions or billions of times the mass of the sun. Um, those seem to exist at the centers of pretty much every reasonably sized galaxy we know about. At the centers? Yes. So, Including see, ours? Yes. Really? Yes. So our galaxy... Okay, quick note. Let's do a few cosmological basics. Our galaxy is Milky Way, right? And this next analogy I got right off of NASA's Night Sky website, which I think is for children, but it's so helpful. So, okay, imagine our sun. It's one star among hundreds of billions of stars in our Milky Way, right? So if we shrink the sun down to smaller than a grain of sand, our little solar system, Venus, Mercury, Earth, all of those would be small enough to fit the whole solar system in the palm of your hand. Now, on that scale, with our solar system in your hand, the Milky Way galaxy would be the size of North America. And the Milky Way is big, but our next-door neighbor, Andromeda Galaxy, it's about twice as big as the Milky Way. Scale is important here, I suppose. But at the center of our galaxy, there's a black hole. So the Milky Way is like a disk of stars and gas and dust and stuff, and we're sort of out toward an edge. And um, at the center, there's a bulge of stars and gas and dust. And then at the middle of that, there's a black hole that's four million times as massive as the sun. I didn't know that. Do we have a name for it? Yeah, yeah, we have a name for it. We call it Sagittarius A-star. Okay. Which How is get a that silly name? name. It's because it's a kind of, I think it was like, um, I think a radio source. And because it was pulling in some matter and so it was lighting up in the radio a little bit and so ours is not pulling in very much matter at all like okay. very occasionally it'll eat a little blob of gas and the astronomers get super excited <laughs> um but like there's very little happening with it but it does it is really big and it's got a bunch of stars orbiting really closely around it and so you can actually go online and see like data um, follow, like tracing out the paths of some of these stars and you can see them like whip around as they go really close to the black <gasps> hole in their orbits. So some of them have these orbits that they're really far away and then they come in really close and they go boom like that right around the black hole. And so you can figure out exactly like how big it is and where it is by watching these stars go around it really quickly. So I did a little looking and if you Google 
European Southern Observatory, and S as in Sam, two, you'll find this. Oh my god, like a rim shot in a basketball game? Like, yeah, what? yeah, yeah, like that, what? except it comes back around, you know, it's on an orbit. So, yeah, so there's stuff orbiting really close. So that black hole, that one is like, well, let's see, it's 8,000 parsecs away. I don't know how much that is, is in light a years. A parsec is about three something light years. Um, okay. So a light year is how far how far it take how far light travels in a year, right? Um, so light moves very quickly. So that's a very long way. Um, so for example, light travels. Uh, it takes light eight minutes to get between the sun and us. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a rule of thumb actually. If you want to know how far how fast light speed is, it goes about a foot per nanosecond. A foot per nanosecond. Yes. Oh, that's easy to calculate. Yeah. Just yeah. a bunch of zeros, right? Yeah. Just put yeah. a zero on it. Yeah. Yeah, it's easy. And now, but, it, but it's kind of cool because then you can like you can say like if somebody is like ten feet away from you, they are ten nanoseconds in the past. <laughs> They're ten nanoseconds in the past. Yeah. Oh man, I'm gonna trip out. I'm just gonna <laughs> so, lose it. So like we're like three nanoseconds apart that's right so now. That's so weird. <laughs> It's <laughs> so weird. It's great though, isn't it? And I yeah. I learned this recently and I've already forgotten it, which is embarrassing. The distance between us and the sun is a certain what is the U Oh, that's um astronomical unit. Astronomical unit. Yeah. That's okay. the distance between us and the sun. I just learned that and then completely forgot it all in the span of a couple of weeks. <laughs> It's okay. There's Oops. no reason to know that stuff. I want to know a little bit more about when you were a kid. By the time Katie was about 10 years old, she was inspired to pursue some form of cosmology. And she was already a fan of British cosmologist and theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking. She was already hip to him. She's like, I know this dude. Now, if you need a quick brush up on him as a person, after this podcast, watch the 2014 Eddie Redmayne film, The Theory of Everything. I'm a cosmologist. What's that? I study the marriage of space and time. The perfect couple. Or you can just watch the trailer and start crying, like somebody you know. Now, if thinking about living on a dust moat, floating in a sunbeam, wasn't inspiration to do what you want to do in life, consider a human who's figuring out the mysteries of the cosmos, doing computations and cracking theories about which I can't even comprehend the first paragraph of the Wikipedia page. Also while living with ALS, Katie is one of several billion people inspired by Stephen Hawking. What was it that Stephen Hawking did or or what did you how did you become aware of him and how did you kind of absorb what he did? Oh, uh, I'm not sure how I became aware of him. I think that you know, he was on TV every once in a while and I had a brief history of time the book um and I read that um and I just like I don't know, like I was interested in black holes and I was interested in like the Big Bang. The Big Bang theory being that the universe began those 13 odd billion years ago with high temperatures and high density and it's continued to expand. Also, note, if you Google Big Bang theory, all roads lead to Sheldon. So just be cash, call it Big Bang as far as Wikipedia is concerned. And so I would read about that stuff, and Stephen Hawking was a big figure in those those areas, and he was, re- he was doing a lot of science communication, and um, he, would, he would visit Caltech every once in a while, uh, and I was growing up in L.A., and, or Long Beach, and so I would sometimes, like, my mom would take me to see talks by 
by physicists because I was super excited about these things. <laughs> and so I remember seeing a talk by him. I remember seeing a talk by uh, Paul Davies and like, you know, um, just prominent theorists would give talks sometimes and somehow my mom would find out about them and take me along because she's she's really into science and science fiction and physics and everything have you gotten to meet have you gotten to meet Stephen Hawking yeah um yeah so when I was at Cambridge um so I spent a year at Cambridge during grad school um just kind of visiting and working with people on some research and I was mostly based in his department and my office was like directly below his yeah um, and, uh, we were in the same, like, research group, basically. I mean, uh, like, like, we didn't talk, to, like, we weren't, I wasn't in his research group, but we were in the same, it was the Center for Theoretical Cosmology, and, like, we were both based there, and so there were, you know, half a dozen professors who were involved with that, he was one of them, and I was a grad student visiting. Um, and, uh, so I would go to all these, like, you know, meetings and the coffee and stuff, and, um, shortly after I was, uh, shortly after I started being a visitor there, um, somebody asked me to do one of the uh, like lunch uh, seminars. So basically, if you're a physicist and you're visiting another department, you're kind of obligated to give a talk. That's kind of how it works. So they say, hey, can you give a talk? She's like, yeah, I'll give a talk for the Thursday lunch seminar. So she does it. And it turns out that it was the lunch seminar that like Hawking goes to I'm getting ready to give the talk and I see like several of my professors in the audience like looking expectantly at me and I'm kind of like at this point I'm like freaking out but he but he he wasn't there Uh, Hawking wasn't there so I was like it's fine it's fine and I'm getting ready to give the talk and then I hear this like beep 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 oh my god my stomach is cramping just hearing this and he shows up oh it gets so much worse Oh God! Um, so I've told this story before, but it's it's still it still like is it makes me like sweat. So <laughs> so I was I was getting ready to give the talk, and so I, I start the talk like I put up the title slide, and I, I was the ti- the topic was primordial black holes, which is a concept that Hawking came up with along with some other people. And, no pressure. Um, yeah. Um, and as I'm starting, like as I after I introduce the title and stuff. Um, I hear this this voice say, Thank you. and it was his voice, and I was like, <gasps> and everybody kind of laughed, you know, and I, I thought maybe he was like thanking me for talking about the thing that he invented, you know, but right. like, I don't know, and you can't ask him to elaborate because he's his speech is very like slow, mm-hmm. so he uses this machine thing, and it just it's very slow. Um, it tracks his eye movements. Uh, yeah. Okay. Or, well, no, not exactly. It tracks, there's a little sensor that looks at his cheek. Um, okay. And so he kind of winks and that like selects words on this like list. And it takes a couple minutes per word sometimes. Right. So you weren't like, I couldn't be elaborate. Like, yeah. Yeah. Right. So I had, so, so I just kept going. And then eventually, like, I heard it again. Yes. Or later on. No. Or. I don't know. Or just random things as I'm going. And every time, like, I'd look at him and I'd be like, you know, but he would just kind of look blankly at me. And the person who was, like, taking care of him, this is a lunch seminar, so the person who was taking care of him was, like, feeding him, and she just mm-hmm. kind of looked blankly at me. And, like, I had no idea what was going on. And so I would just kind of pause and then continue. Because, <laughs> like, what am I going to do? Was he heckling you? What was happening here? I had no idea. And I was so nervous. And, like, all the professors were there. And, and already one of the other professors had been, like, asking a whole bunch of really tough questions on, like, the second slide. So I was already, like, freaked out. Just imagine being in this situation. It's 
a nightmare. It's like the best nightmare ever. But like I answered the questions and he seemed to be okay with it. So I finished the talk and uh, Hawking left and he hadn't asked any questions. And um, I, I asked one of the seminar organizers, like, what, what was that? And he was like, oh, well, when he eats, the machine <gasps> oh my picks God. up on his chewing and it just picks random stuff from like the quick select menu. <laughs> so, oh. So, no. and nothing to do with me at all. It was oh, just no. like, it was just like, here's the, you know, here's the most common phrases. Yes, no, maybe, I don't know. I don't think so. Oh my God. This is like the worst deodorant ad ever. <laughs> like this is the most stressful situation you could possibly it ever be in. Me. Oh my God. And like, they could have told me. Yeah. They could have given you a little heads up. Because this happens every time. Oh my God. They oh just, they, my God. But like, they just didn't mention it. Any word on whether or not he liked your talk? I have no idea. I have oh no idea. Oh, my God. Did you ever <laughs> tell him that you went into cosmology because of him? Um, I, I don't... Well, so the first time I met him, when I was 16... Oh, just baby. 14. 14. Baby, baby. I did tell him then that I was a big fan. So Hawking was at Caltech, and Katie got her mom to drive her and a friend there to hear him speak and afterward they were walking the same way that he was going when they were leaving and she was too nervous to say hi i my friend went up to him and said my friend would like to speak to you (laughs) she had a wingman (laughs) (laughs) so i went up and said that i was a big fan and i enjoyed his work and i thanked him and he said thank you very much now what happens to you when you get that because you're really i mean I'm not going to fangirl right here. I'll do it in the intro. But you're like a very big voice in science communication. You're like, you're a very well-known astrophysicist, cosmologist. What, what? How do you feel when people come up to you and say, I was inspired to study this or you've changed my course? Like, what kind of reactions do you get? It's, I mean, it doesn't, so it's not, I'm not like Stephen Hawking. Like, I'm not that level of famous and I'm not that level of like important in physics and stuff and, and you know, so it's it's kind of a different thing, but I do, you know, sometimes people do like tell me that that they like. A, uh, so one of the messages I've gotten a couple of times is a like a teenage girl will say that um, she didn't think she could do astrophysics, um, but she really loved it, and then she saw what I was saying on Twitter or something, or she saw me speak, and then she decided she was going to go for it. Wow. So I do get that sometimes, and I, like, my feelings don't know what to do with that, <laughs> um, but it's really, it's really sweet. And Throw him in a black hole! <laughs> no feelings here! <laughs> um, I mean, it, it is really sweet. It's really, like, rewarding when that happens, and, and it, it makes me feel like maybe, like, this stuff is... Maybe the stuff I'm doing is is worthwhile when people say stuff like that. Or like a little kid will sometimes say that they want to be an astrophysicist or something and they'll be really excited to meet me. Like I was I was in Raleigh um a couple of weeks ago and I was uh I was sitting in a cafe and I was wearing my NASA jacket with a little NASA badge on it that mm-hmm. I got at JPL. JPL, by the way, is NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and it's nestled in the golden hills of Pasadena, California, and it's responsible for things like rovers on Mars. And according to press materials, JPL's function is to engineer and fabricate cool-ass shit that's, like, so dope. That's very bold, NASA. Also, do not fact-check that part. It is not true. 
And um, this little girl came up to me, and she was probably like eight or something. And um, she asked me if I work for NASA, and I said I don't work for NASA, but I am an astrophysicist. And <laughs> um, and so we like talk a little bit, and she said that she really is into space and stuff. And I was like, well, I'm giving a talk at the museum in a couple of days. You can come and hear my talk. And so she and her mom came to my talk, and she asked a question, and it was just really sweet. And I was like, oh, what was her question? Um, I think her I think her question was about like what's inside a black hole, mm-hmm. which is a good question. You're like a bunch of space garbage. Well, uh, yeah. So it's I mean, it's, it's not a straightforward answer, really, because once stuff goes inside the black hole, it has to go straight to the singularity and it can't do anything else. And so then does it really exist at that point? <gasps> like, that's kind of subtle. But anyway, it's a good question. And apparently, like, she was talking about the talk later on. And oh, I was like, yay. oh, you know, I inspired somebody. She's going to be in your department later and give a talk <laughs> while you're at lunch. Maybe. Um, sure. Explain the singularity. Uh, yeah, yeah. So a singularity is... So it comes up in the context of the Big Bang and in the context of a black hole. Mm-hmm. Um, a singularity is like a point of infinite density. Okay. Um, usually in physics, when you have a singularity, I mean, a singularity basically means it's a point where something infinite happens. Okay. Where, like, where things diverge in some way. Um, and usually when that happens in physics, it means you've done something wrong. Okay. Um, and it's a sign that the theory is broken and you just can't deal with that. Because none, none of the theory like really works at a point of infinite anything. Okay. Um, in the black hole, like the way that black holes are defined and the way that we understand how the gravity works, there really should be a singularity at the center of the black hole and everything has to move toward it. So, so the, you know, the black hole has this, is this thing that, like the way you make a black hole, I'm going to back up a little yeah, bit. Yeah, no, back up because yeah. I'm like, where do they come from? What's the deal? Yeah. So the way you make a black hole is you take a really massive star and you wait a while, millions of years, and the star um, will explode and uh, the core of the star will collapse on itself. And if it's massive enough, then, um, I mean, the reason that the star didn't collapse before is because it had nuclear burning happening and it was kind of keeping it puffed up. Okay. Right? Um, and so you had this energy source that's sort of pushing against it, kind of like if you have like a balloon and the air inside is pushing the, the, um, plastic, the rubber out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when the star explodes, there's nothing to keep it from collapsing under its own gravity. <gasps> um, the, the, you know, you, you get to a point where there's, you can't do any more nuclear fusion. So nuclear fusion is when atoms join to become a different kind of atom. And they give off energy in the process, like two hydrogens becoming a helium and giving off energy. Now, this happens with atoms up to the size of iron, at which point that fusion starts to take energy. You can't get any more energy out of those processes because you've gotten to a point where you've just the whole center of the star is is iron, basically, and it can't go farther than that. And so then you have this like huge chunk of iron that's not being held up by anything. And so it starts to collapse under its own gravity. Like that stuff just falls in and it has to go toward the center and it has to keep going toward the center and it can't go any other direction. And so you end up with this singularity, this point of infinite density, technically. Um, what is the shape like? Is it like an ice cream cone that has an infinite tail? or what? what is I it? mean, you can visualize it that way if you think about it in terms of like a 
2D analog. Like usually when we think of space time, like the pictures are always like a big rubber, rubber sheet. The rubber sheet visual is so helpful for comprehending space time. Um, but also when I think of rubber sheets, usually the situation is not comfortable. It's either like an awkward grade school slumber party explanation or some suburban dungeon kink that sounds exasperating at best. But for space, rubber sheets, thumbs up. Mm-hmm. And you have this big rubber sheet and you put a bowling ball in one spot and that bends around. And so then when you take your tennis ball and you try and roll it past the bowling ball, it makes a little orbit and falls in, right? Ah. This is the usual visualization for space time. Um, but that doesn't have the right number of dimensions because space is space is three dimensional and mm-hmm. then you can think of time as another dimension but that's kind of separate thing i am curious um, about time as a fourth dimension okay too. Well, we can talk about that okay too. but we're going to take a quick break for sponsors of the show sponsors why sponsors you know what they do they help us give money to different charities every week so if you want to know where ologies gives our money you can go to alleyward.com and look for the tab ologies gives back there's like 150 different charities that we've given to already with more every single week. So if you need a place to go donate a little bit of money, but you're not sure where to go, those are all picked by ologists who work in those fields. And this ad break allows us to give a ton of money to them. So thanks for listening and thanks sponsors. What do you get for the mom who burst you into the world? I know, a candle. Are you like, no, that's not quite enough. How about memories that she'll love looking at every day. Aura frames, I love them. So they're a digital photo frame. They were named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and by me. And Aura frames are Wi-Fi connected. You can add unlimited photos and videos, and you can invite as many people as you want to the frame. There are absolutely no hidden fees. There's no subscriptions. You can also react with cute emojis if you'd like, and you can show you love a photo. You can send congratulations or more. It's so wonderful that A, it's not a candle. And also, it's not sharing your photos on social media to look at. It's just there. You can share it with the people who you love. I have mentioned this so many times, but my parents have an aura that I got them. My dad loved that. I have gotten aura frames for friends, for family members, for family members of friends. So I'm a really big fan of them. I love what they do. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best selling frame. So that's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use the code ologies at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. I love these things. Oh, hi, it's me, the lady that checks a bunch of scholarly articles before she believes anything. Allie Ward. And I feel like we are similar in that we have a fair amount of skepticism and we like to dive deep and find out what the actual facts are. This is why when it comes to any kind of supplements, I enjoy Ritual, which is a female-founded B Corp, meaning that they're holding themselves accountable to not just the company, but also to the health of people in our planet. And they're clinically backed essential for women 18 plus multivitamin has these high quality, traceable key ingredients in bioavailable forms that are clean. Only about 1% of supplement brands are USP verified and Ritual is one of them. So I like being able to trust what I'm putting in my body. 
body. From an aesthetic standpoint, I'll also tell you that Ritual are beautiful little vitamins. They look like lava lamps and they taste like mint. So taking my Ritual is part of my, I guess, morning ritual. I, that's probably why they named it that and I didn't even think about it. Anyway, no more shady business. Ritual's essential for women 18 plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. So get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash ologies. You can start Ritual or add essential for women 18 plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash ologies for 25% off. Down the hatch. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Do you find yourself searching for true crime podcasts that are different from what you're always recommended? Do you want to make a real difference in the cases that you're following? Well, you're a crime junkie. And I'm Ashley Flowers, the creator and host of the number one true crime podcast, Crime Junkie. There are hundreds of episodes already available, and each Monday we dive into the details of cases spanning from some of the most infamous to those that you have never heard covered before. Listen to Crime Junkie podcast now, wherever you're listening. Okay. I'm sorry. I have so many questions. But anyway, so if you if if space is three-dimensional, then the way gravity like works on it is that it kind of like pulls space inward toward itself. So like a massive thing kind of pulls space inward toward itself. So in the context of a black hole, it would be like a place where space gets really scrunched up, right? Oh. But it's easier to think about it in the two-dimensional case. So it would be like you have your rubber sheet and you you pinch a piece of that rubber sheet and you just pull it down and you just keep pulling it down. <laughs> um, and it just goes to a point and it's like, you know, forever and it gets deeper and, and narrower or whatever. Right. Um, so you can think about it like that, but then you think about like a three dimensional analog and your brain kind of breaks and it's right. harder. Um, but yeah, so it's basically a place where space is really super curved. Okay. And really super bent inward. And so there's a point, um, so if you think again about the 2D kind of thing, the rubber mm-hmm. sheet, um, you can you can still move past like if you if you have your your like little hole that you pulled down on your rubber sheet, you can still mm-hmm. take your tennis ball and roll it past that and it'll keep going. But if it gets too close, it'll fall in and there's nothing you can do about it. And it'll always go toward the the deepest point. Mm-hmm. And so that's like there's this horizon, this this distance from this from that singularity where if you get closer than that, you will fall in no matter what. And you will just keep going and you can't ever escape. And light itself will fall in too because light follows the curve of space. And so if space is curved enough, then light will just follow that curve all the way down. Oh, man. Um, so once, you know, so you throw, throw a flashlight into a black hole, like that light never comes out again. It just keeps, it goes, that, that light beam, no matter which direction the flashlight is facing, the light beam will bend toward the center. And what is that danger zone called? Uh, the, the event horizon. Okay, that is, is the event that's, horizon. Yeah, that's okay. the event horizon. I mean, you should probably stay farther than the event horizon the event. <laughs> in general. Um, because other bad things can happen to you if you get close to the black hole. If you listened to Ology's episode one, Volcanology, and thought jumping into a, a volcano was intense, like, hang on to your butts right now. I mean, so for one thing, the most of the most of the ones that we've seen directly with light are pulling in matter, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that means that there's a lot of hot stuff falling into the black hole in the form of a disk. 
And um, so that'll radiate you to death Yikes. if you get too close. And then if you if you get close, if it's a small enough black hole, then when you get close, the tidal forces will kill you. So tidal force is where you have, like, it's where you have more more gravity. Uh, the gravity is pulling stronger on part of you than another part. Oh, no. So, like, if like if you imagine, you know, you're falling fa- feet first toward a black hole, mm-hmm. um, the gravity goes the strength of the gravity goes up so steeply because it's such a compact steep thing uh-huh. then your feet will be pulled on much oh. more tightly than your head and you'll be stretched Ow. out and Ow. it's it's there's a word for it it's called spaghettification <laughs> it's actually called that yeah yeah so so you have to watch out for spaghettification if you get too close to a black hole I don't know. I mean, Hawking uses it. I don't, maybe he came up with it. I'm not really sure. Oh my god! But of all of the things to call it, yeah, of yeah. all of the things, well, t- turns you to spaghetti. I don't know. Like that's just what else are you gonna call it? Like, oh I my mean, it's, god! It's tidal disruption, but I love it. You know. the most. <laughs> yeah, spaghettification was indeed coined by Hawking in his book, A Brief History of Time, and. If you happen to Google image search this, you will find a bounty of photoshopped images of astronauts being tapered into space noodles by cosmic forces. I'm so impressed by this astrophysical whimsy. Yeah, there are a lot of there are a lot of really silly names in in astronomy. Who gets to name this stuff? Uh, whoever comes up with it. I mean, people who come up with it name it, but like sometimes the community names it. Like the Big mm-hmm. Bang. That that was a joke. Like it was? That, the word was a joke. The <gasps> term, the Big Bang. Like somebody came up with the idea that you know the universe started small and has been expanding, mm-hmm. um, and somebody was like, "Oh, the Big Bang," and that it stuck. No, mm. it was a throwaway. Yeah, it was like it was mocking. Did that person get pissed that it stuck? Uh, I'm not sure. Okay, so English astronomer Fred Hoyle coined the term Big Bang. It was during a radio broadcast in the late 1940s. And it was kind of on accident. Now, the story is he's so bent that it stuck, but apparently he denies that. So, drama. In terms of what, in terms of what your output is, you're, you're a professor, you give talks, you travel all over the world. Like, what is your big goal as a cosmologist? Like, do you want to write an encyclopedia about cosmology? (laughs) Like, what's your, what's your end game? So, what are my goal? Uh, I mean, I want to figure stuff out, but I don't have like, there's not like one thing where it's like I must solve this problem. I mm-hmm. I kind of like uh, just working on whatever fun stuff comes up, which is not what you're supposed to do. <laughs> but it's what you like. It's always what I like. I mean, so the big thing I'm working on right now has to do with dark matter. So dark matter is this invisible stuff, you know. Um, and it's possible that dark matter has this weird property where if you take a dark matter particle and another dark matter particle and you you like collide them into each other in just the right way, they'll annihilate and create other kinds of particles. What? So that's a possibility. Um, and if that's the case, if that's a thing that happens, then it can mess with how the first stars and galaxies form because those form in these like blobs of dark matter. And the formation of those is kind of delicate um, because you have to get the right balance of the gravity and the gas and all this stuff. So if dark matter is going and like annihilating all the time, then that sort of messes with that balance. Huh. And so it can change the way the first stars and galaxies form, and then we can look for evidence of that with telescopes. So this is the kind of problem that I like, where you have like a sort of fundamental particle physics problem, and then you try and figure out how to look for it with telescopes. 
So what does your work involve? Do you have like a moleskin that's just filled with like gobbledygook equations or are you working on a computer yes. with data sets? Like where, yes. when you're like, when you get down to work, yeah. what does that look like? So I do have my moleskin with full of equations over there. <laughs> um, I brought it with me. Uh, so I have that. Um, I also have a whole bunch of code that I've written to try to solve some of these equations that are in the moleskin. Mm-hmm. I mean, so the, so the usual thing is like, okay, you talk to people who work on similar things and you try and come up with like, what is a, what is, how can we answer this question? Or what is a question we can answer with this observation? Or like, what would be a cool thing that might happen that we could find out if it does happen? So then physicists talk to each other and write stuff down and look at papers and write down more equations. And I was kind of surprised to realize how collaborative this could be. I always imagined physicists needed to be like sequestered in a well-appointed lab or a classy den to just think clearly. But no, there's like a lot of chatting happening. And then um, once you figure out like what equations you need to solve and what things you need to calculate, then you then you go to the computer and you write code um, to calculate those things and to put out numbers and draw graphs. And then you see if you have something interesting or not. <laughs> and, see if it all kind of clicks. Yeah, yeah. And you see if like, you know, does this tell us that this is going to be an interesting technique to test the theory or not? And then depending on, you know, because this is all theoretical work, sometimes um, sometimes you find, well, this is just really uninteresting and nobody's going to care, so I'm not going to write it up. <laughs> um, sometimes you're like, well, you know, it turns out you can't measure this thing with this technique, but we should write that down anyway because people might have tried otherwise. And then sometimes it's like, oh, we, we can measure this thing with this thing, and that w- that'll be a really interesting result, and we'll get a better answer than anybody's gotten before, so we're going to write it up and be really happy about it. And then you go toward writing it up in publishing it yeah yeah and then and then you write the paper and then you publish the paper and then you know or you send it to the journal and the journals the editors or the referees are like yeah you should do this differently and so you do that differently and then eventually it gets published what is the craziest paper that you've ever had published when the title (laughs) of the craziest paper because just looking at paper titles is yeah so funny to me because they're so specific and wonderful i mean i guess it depends on what you mean i wrote a paper um called Known Unknowns of Dark Matter Annihilation Over Cosmic Time. (laughs) That sounds like the best, like, Norwegian metal (laughs) album ever. (laughs) It was like, well, yeah. So that was all about, like, what we know we don't know about this problem. Mm -hmm. I've calculated a bunch of stuff. Um, I've, I had some papers about, uh, like, axions and, and those are, theoretical particles that are super cool um, is there an upper limit to how many words your paper title can be yeah you don't want it to okay. be, i mean you kind of want it to be punchy right like like <laughs> the whole known unknowns thing is i wanted it to be like eye-catching right mm-hmm. um it's good marketing yeah yeah so so you got to think about marketing to some degree um and you don't want it to be a long title because people are going to be skimming it this part is crazy. It's like trying to buy Beyonce tickets. So the way that people find papers to read is every day, every weekday, the website, it's arxiv.org. There's like a hundred new papers about astronomy and physics and math and stuff. So so the way that people find papers to read um, is every day, every single day, every weekday, um, the archive website it's A-R-X-I-V is how it's spelled, but we call it the archive. The archive website um, displays 
like a hundred papers, new papers about astronomy. Um, and there's just a list and the titles. So there's the titles and the authors and maybe like the abstract, depending on how you read the archive. And if you're a responsible astronomer, mm -hmm. then every morning you wake up and you read the archive and you skim the papers and the, and the abstracts and you see which ones are relevant to your work. And then you, you know, open those and read, you know, skim those papers and find out if like they tell you something interesting, you get information. This is how you keep up with the field. That's so much work. It's so much work. <laughs> it's a heck of a lot of work. And if you're somebody who maybe does, you know, particle theory stuff as well, then there's a whole other archive for like particle theory and then particle phenomenology, which is more like the phenomenology is like where you try and figure out what you would see in this in the universe. So that's closer to what I do. So then if I if you're trying to read particle theory and ph phenomenology and astronomy, you can get like 150 papers or something every day. It's a black hole. It's just, it's impossible to keep up. Oh my God. But anyway, so because of that, you want your paper title to be punchy and eye catching. <laughs> but the other thing, so there's a, there's, this is like so totally inside baseball, but there's, there's this ridiculous thing that happens. So the order of the papers as they appear on the website is determined just by what time they were sent in. And after not too long, these are literal geniuses. They were like, duh. There's a cutoff time of like 4 p.m. in some time zone, I don't remember which one, where if you get your paper in as close as possible after that time, it will appear at the top oh of the archive. Oh my God. And so there's this, you can, people have written papers about like the <gasps> spike in submission times where like everybody's trying to get like for, you know, o'clock zero, zero, one second. Like, they all want to get it, like, exactly oh my at that moment so that their paper will be on the top of the list. Because a lot of people, you know, like, they open the archive and then they just get, like, exhausted by the time yeah. they've gone through five <gasps> papers. And so they don't get to the end of the list. And so, <laughs> so there's oh, this ridiculous, man. like... This ridiculous ritual of when you when you submit your paper to the archive, you try and like you watch the clock and you try and hit the submit button at oh, exactly the right moment. That makes me so anxious. Yeah. It's like when some when people comment first on yeah. like a YouTube video. It should, it should be ram randomized because it there's really also should. like it's also been shown that it does matter in terms of like citations. That's not right. It's not right. Oh my god. Yeah. Um. Oh wait. What was a question that I had right on top of that? It was definitely a stupid question. Um. I don't think any questions are stupid. Are you sure? I think these are good <laughs> questions. These are important questions. Because, like, what it doesn't... Like, you know, these are... Like, if you're asking questions about something because you're not an expert in that field, like, you can't be an expert in every field. If I ask questions about entomology, I'm going to have no idea what's going on. <laughs> okay, you know, good. That makes I, feel I, better. I'm, like, I'm still trying to remember what the difference is between a bug and not a bug, right? Like, I don't know. Um, I'll give you some clearance on that. Okay. But the problem is, is yeah. you study the universe. Yes. So, could your field be any broader? Like that's no, <laughs> no, it could not. <laughs> literally everything. <laughs> yeah, and this this can be a problem too. Like when I give talks, I have to be prepared for anything like, oh for the questions, and, and that used to just freak me out a lot. And now I just feel like like I just have to I have to read as widely as possible. And sometimes I'll be like, I have no idea. But like, like I gave the talk about gravitational waves at, in Raleigh the other week, and one of the questions was, uh, tell me about the great red spot on Jupiter. And I was like, it's a storm. <laughs> it's been shrinking. Uh, there's a 
there's a spacecraft looking at it, you should maybe talk to somebody who studies, <laughs> studies about that. The Great Red Spot, by the way, that's its actual name. It's a little on the nose. Also, people mix it up sometimes with the Great Dark Spot, which was near Jupiter's northern pole. So y'all call me. Let me name some of these things. Also, how did Katie feel about the detection of gravitational waves? This was the LIGO project you may have heard about in 2016. The detection of gravitational waves by the LIGO instrument um, was probably the biggest discovery in physics in my lifetime. Damn. Yeah. That's a big deal. It's a super big deal. Um, I... When the announcement, so the first the first detection was last year sometime. Or, well, the detection was at the end of 2015, and it was announced, I guess, um, during 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, the The announcement was in, I don't remember what time zone it was or whatever, but it was such that it was going to be 2 a.m. local time in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And so a bunch of us got together and, like, had a party um, in, in a university department, like we brought food and booze and like we watched videos and like we took, like we took selfies. It was really late. Mm -hmm. Um, but we were just like, we got to see this live, you know? And, and there were, there were two people in the room who, who were part of the collaboration. Um, so they, they already knew what was going to be done, but the rest of us, like we'd heard rumors, but we didn't know for sure what was, what that was going to be announced. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, it was, it was just a huge party and it was a, we were really excited and like we just everybody was like clapping and stuff when it happened and i mean it was it was a huge deal the way that it was announced was like a, a press conference from like a awesome 80s movie yeah ladies and gentlemen we have detected gravitational waves we did it I mean, how cute is that? So that was Dave Reitze. He's a laser physicist and he's director of the LIGO Lab. And I love that audio so much. It's just like pure triumph. Like the last scene of a Schwarzenegger movie or something. We have detected gravitational waves. Yeah. And then the clapping back. It was like the best. Yeah. 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 No, I remember that very clearly. Um, so explain to me why yeah. the detection of gravitational waves is such a big deal. Okay, so so first, gravitational waves are are ripples in this fabric of space time. So you know the space space can be bent around massive objects, and when massive objects are moving through space, if they're moving in an accelerated way, which could be in an orbit, an orbit is a kind of accelerated motion um, that creates ripples in in this sort of space time fabric, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of hard to visualize and explain, but it ripples through space, and so like when you have really massive objects moving really quickly um, that can make large disturbances relative to other things. I mean, if I wave my hands, I'm making gravitational waves, but like that's not detectable. Uh-huh. Um, so, so, it, so two black holes orbiting each other make really big detectable gravitational waves, especially when they get so close that they're about to merge into one thing. Um, so you can have two black holes in a binary orbit orbiting each other. And then as they get closer and closer, the signal gets stronger and stronger. Um, you know, the waves get stronger and stronger and then they merge. And that makes this big sort of burst of gravitational waves. And the way that gravitational waves work, they're not like ripples on a pond. Usually when you see a visualization, it's like ripples on a pond. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's that two-dimensional analog, you know, again, Mm -hmm. um, 
and they're not like if you were if you're standing there the gravitational wave like moves your space that you're in but it doesn't just like move you up and down what it does is it stretches and squeezes the space that you're in. What? So let's say that you're standing there and a gravitational wave comes and hits you in the face. Mm-hmm. Um, what that does to you is it stretches your space a little bit so you get a little bit taller and at the same time a little skinnier and then a little bit shorter and a little wider. What? And like it oscillates back and forth. So if, as the waves are coming at you, each wave is giving you that like, that stretch and squeeze, stretch and squeeze. What? And so it's actually distorting your shape. Oh my god, when so this is happening. This is like a big boyoing and it's it keep like for everything that creates gravitational waves, is this doing this it's to doing us on all a the time? Micro micro yes. basis? Yeah, yeah. So so the LIGO experiment is built to detect these things. They have two detectors and each detector is like it's an L-shaped thing. Uh, each arm is four kilometers long. Now, if you've seen photos of this, you might think from a distance this is some shit that we built like on Mars because there's just this treeless ochre landscape in the desert. It seems to look lonely in every direction. But no, it's just Washington State. And they shoot lasers back and forth along these two arms. They're, they meet at the, at the center. And, and they're measuring... The lasers are just there to measure the length of those arms, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and when a gravitational wave comes and hits that detector, it makes one of the arms a little longer while the other one gets a little shorter and vice versa, oh. depending on the direction and the you know phase and everything. So if it, if it does that, then the detector can detect that the length of the arms has changed... And and then that's the signal, is the changing of the length of the arms. And the level on which that happens, so this is four kilometers, right? Yeah, that's about two and a half miles, America. The first detection, when it was detected, the, the length of that four kilometer arm changed in length by a thousandth the width of a proton. Oh my god. Yeah. That's a teensy tiny. That's really small. And this was... A huge collision. Yeah, yeah. So, this was like, it was uh, 1.3 billion light years away, so it was very far. Mm-hmm. But it was like the black holes were around 30 times as massive as the sun. Oh, God. And they collided. And so it was a pretty strong signal. Like, it was a surprisingly strong signal. Like, if you actually looked at the data, raw data, like, you could see it, which is not usually the case in, in this kind of field. Usually, like, you have to do lots of processing. But, like, you could see the, the signal. is very strong. Um so, but yeah, thousands the width of a proton. So the you know your own height is changing by yeah. much less than that, right? Because right, you're not right. four kilometers long. Sure, I'm, <laughs> but, so I'm getting a little bit not quite as tall and not yeah, quite as skinny and not yeah. kind of quite as short as fat as is yeah not noticeable in a photograph. Say yes, yeah, yeah. It's really it's a really subtle effect. Um, but um, but yeah, so so that's the gravitational wave. It's the detection of that that change in, in length that sort of stretching and squeezing of space time and each time the black holes you know black holes or or something collide um you get this kind of like the the wiggles will come faster and closer together and so the frequency of this changing of shape is going up and the amplitude is going up and so it makes this kind of rising sound if you transmit it if you change it into sound it, it's like a sort of like ooh. And the like end part is when they collide. Um, and the reason people change it to sound a lot is because the frequency of these waves coming, like how 
how quickly the stretching and squeezing happens is about the same frequency as like sound waves. Okay. So it is kind of audible. Like if you change it to sound, it's kind of audible. And that was like the the boop heard around the world, yes. right? Yeah, yeah. It's called a chirp. A chirp? Yes. Just a little, yeah, chirp. little chirp. A chirp. Mm-hmm. Okay, you ready for this? This is the sound of history. So yeah. what does that mean going forward for astrophysicists? Yeah. And like how many more have we heard since then? Uh, so there have been, oh gosh, I don't even know the number, like something like five um, seen now. Uh, and w- the most recent... The most recent one was was two black holes, but the one before that was a neutron. It was two neutron stars, and those were a big deal because those, when they collided, also created a gamma ray burst. A gamma ray burst, super energetic explosion. So we can't see gamma rays, but they pack a punch and a burst. And so we were able to see the collision from the the gravitational waves, but also from light, and that was a huge deal. And I can talk about that for hours, um, but. It's it's a big deal. The, the whole thing is a big deal for a bunch of reasons. One is that this, like, the existence of gravitational waves was kind of known indirectly because we'd seen systems where, like, you had two uh, pulsars orbiting each other. So a pulsar is a kind of neutron star. A neutron star is like the core of a dead star. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so we'd we'd seen things orbiting each other where the the changing of the orbit could only really be easily explained by gravitational waves kind of radiating energy away from the orbit. And so the, the orbit got smaller because gravitational waves were pulling energy away oh. um, and sort of shrinking that orbit. So so we had indirect evidence that gravitational waves existed, but we'd never seen them directly. And seeing, like, directly, like, detecting, like, feeling the gravitational wave is a huge deal, right? <laughs> and the and gravitational waves were, like, the last the, the last prediction of Einstein's relativity to be confirmed. Einstein's theory of relativity, remember, our perception of the force of gravity is a bendy space-time thing. I'm very paraphrasing a lot. Um, so he predicted them 500, or 100 years, about 100 years before the first detection was made. Um, so it was, it took a long time right. <laughs> to see these things, but so it was confirmed that. And it's just this incredible laboratory for, for relativity, for physics. Um, because by detecting the gravitational waves, um, and looking at the signal, we were able to determine that gravitational waves travel at the speed of light, oh. which we didn't know for sure before. That was part of the theory, but we didn't know for sure. So we, we figured that out. Um, it told us stuff about how black holes are made, like what black holes are made of, sort of like the properties of black holes by examining very closely how they come together and, and merge, um, how much energy the gravitational wave burst creates, you know, um, a lot of stuff about, about that. And then because now we can, we can watch black holes colliding uh, in the distant universe, we can learn about how black holes grow, you know, by when they collide with each other. And that tells us something about how black holes grow. It tells us something about how galaxies grow. It tells us something about how stars form because black holes are the end results of stars. When you were a kid, were you ever hoping that this, that we would be able to detect gravitational waves? Um, were so, you like, I've been waiting since I was a little girl? Um, so, so I didn't know a whole lot about gravitational waves when I was a little kid but there was there was a really beautiful moment um during one of the the detection of the neutron star collisions when one of the scientists um was he was 
he was talking about the neutron star collision and the neutron stars when they collide they make a slightly different kind of like chirp sound okay here's the sound of the neutron stars booping themselves together So the, the black hole one is actually a lot quicker than what I said, but the neutron star one goes like, whoop. it takes, it takes a while and it does it. Um, so, and there'd been simulations of this for years. I mean, the scientist who was talking about the discovery said that he'd been waiting to hear that sound from nature for 20 years. Oh. And he just did. Oh. Um, and it was really touching. I mean, so for me, I, I knew about LIGO because it was, um, it was partly um, headed by people at Caltech, and I was an undergrad at Caltech. And so when I was an undergrad there, um, people were talking about it a lot. And there was there was a famous bet between like Kip Thorne and Stephen Hawking or something. Kip Thorne, by the way, is a theoretical physicist, the 2017 Nobel laureate. Um, about whether or not gravitational waves would be detected by the year 2000. Um, I started at Caltech in 99. Um, so they were not detected by year 2000, so that bet was lost. Um, but it was a funny thing because when I first got to Caltech, they were building LIGO and it was this big deal and everybody's like, we're going to detect gravitational waves, it's going to be amazing. And then, um, you know, and LIGO was being built and I was like, oh, it's any minute now. And then I, I left Caltech and I went to grad school and then after a while I was like, I haven't heard anything about this for a yeah. while, you know, and, and I realized that like, they'd kind of like they'd been like yeah we're gonna detect gravitational waves and they kind of got quiet for a while and i found out i later on asked about it and they were like oh no it's advanced ligo so there are some upgrades over the years from initial ligo to enhanced ligo to advanced ligo it's kind of like the the tall grande and venti gravitational wave detectors just maybe you need a little more to get the job done. Really going to do the detection. The initial LIGO was like, maybe it would get lucky, but advanced LIGO will really see something. I'm like, really? And so like for a while I was like, I don't know how to feel. Like, I don't know if I believe that this is really going to happen. But then, you know, as soon as they turned advanced LIGO on, like within like a week or something, they, they saw this thing. So oh, that's crazy. Like, they really, they really did it. And it's the most like, it's the most precise instrument ever built by humans. Um, I think I read that somewhere. It's like the, the, I mean, you're measuring something so tiny. It's crazy. It's, it's impossible. It is, it's incredible how, like what went into it in terms of the engineering and, um, you know, just the, the physics and like they had to, cal- they had to correct for things like the, like how much the photons hitting the mirrors would move them. Oh my God. You know? Oh my <laughs> like, God. Like that was, that's a big part of the, the noise in the signal. Like <gasps> this the, that's called the photon shot noise. They have to oh deal with that. Oh my God. Yeah. So stuff like that. I mean, it's, it's incredible that they were able to do this. So can you get the chirp as a ringtone? I believe you can. You can? I believe so, yes. Would you get the the neutron whoop or would you get the Well the black hole one the the black hole one you have to speed it up to make it sound cool. Mm-hmm. Um so you can still hear it, but it's more like a th- like, <laughs> like so so in the actual data it's like th- that that's kind of what it sounds like. But then when you when you speed it up it goes whoop whoop. But it's very quick. Whereas the neutron star one it's like whoop. I feel like, yeah, I feel like that's the way to go. Yeah. Yeah. Let's say someone is interested in cosmology, but doesn't know a lot about it and is intimidated by it. What is the best book to pick up? I actually, and this is, I don't know if you've ever read this, but I was, 
I was in Thailand and I was staying in a hut and there were some there was a free book pile. Oh yeah. And I picked up a book called Quantum Mechanics Can't Hurt You. This book was actually called Quantum Theory Cannot Hurt You. It's by Marcus Chon and it's delightful. I found my copy. It's still moldy from a monsoon. It was good. It was cool. very it was very layperson's terms. Excellent. But um I clearly don't didn't retain any of it, but is there a book or a documentary or something that's just a good primer because like in this episode there's no way to describe everything but like what's a good go-to like astrophysics for dummies what are we talking here is there a pamphlet uh so i i wish i had a really good answer for this (laughs) it makes me feel like you don't (laughs) you're wincing so the thing is like i don't i don't read a lot of popular level right. stuff and there's a couple of reasons for that so number one she doesn't have much time to read non-papers because there's like a billion papers and when she does she likes to read about spaceships okay two when something is written for the general public astrophysicists have to take that lay information and kind of back translate it to a more technical version in their head. So it's like if you were a bartender and someone writes, she drank a whiskey, but you're distracted wondering, a whiskey? Well, was it like a bourbon? Is this a single malt scotch? Was it a rye? Tennessee whiskey? Is this on the rocks? Was it a cocktail? There's so much detail omitted. I mean, Sean Carroll's written several books that are really good. Um, so take a look at those. Okay. Um, there's a physicist, Katie Fries, uh, Catherine Fries, who's a dark matter uh, theorist like me. Oh, uh, She's a dark matter cosmologist, and she's written a book called uh, Cosmic Cocktail. And it's all about um, about dark matter. And also like some autobiographical stuff. It's really cool. Uh, what about, what about movies? Do you have a favorite or a least favorite movie about space or cosmology? You're like, can, <laughs> can I not answer some of them? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, okay, so, so, favorite. Yes. Um, so there aren't a lot of movies where I feel like the cosmology, like, cosmology is hard to have as a topic of a movie because it's just too big a topic and, like, stuff happens on cosmological time scales, which is like, incredibly long times and so having something happen within a movie time frame is really hard um but uh there's a movie that i really liked for how it portrayed the scientists and it had some some cosmology ish stuff in it um Mm -hmm. uh so that was sunshine okay which the science is wrong just putting that out there it's it's about the sun has like burned out or is burning out and they have to fix it and none of that can happen all of that's false all that's fake but it's done really well in terms of like they have physicists who who acts like a physicist and and like they have people who talk like scientists and i kind of just enjoyed it okay um so i thought that and then there's like a monster thing so anyway but i thought that was done really well um i really enjoyed gravity there is also bad physics in gravity in some places, but I thought it was a beautiful movie. All right. Um, and it, it portrayed space very well. How do you feel about space balls? I think it was funny. It was, okay. a, it's been a long time. <laughs> oh, hell yes, it was good. Yeah. Uh, other space movies like The Martian was fun. Interstellar had a very pretty black hole in it. Okay. That's that. You are being, you are being very complimentary and that is duly noted. <laughs> you are being a very nice person. <laughs> <laughs> the, the black hole and the wormhole in Interstellar were very beautifully done and done with um, with 
proper relativistic equations. It was very clever because what they did is they 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 had these simulations that are very very difficult and take a very long time on supercomputers. And they gave them to the the um, the people who do movie graphics who have really powerful super supercomputers, <laughs> and they're like, "No, we need to do this black hole properly." So they calculated it, and now they got some like papers out of it because the result was such such a good calculation that they were able to get actual science out of the the calculation done for the graphics in the movie because movies are better funded than yeah. Than physics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it was a, it was a it was a very good move. Um, but but you should you should know that that the black hole in in Interstellar, although there are some aspects that are done very faithfully, they did have they did tweak some things. So it actually would look pretty different um, if we saw an actual black hole in real life. So there are a couple of things that were tweaked that were a bit different. So speaking of movies, Katie and I were supposed to go to one after this interview, and we did, but we barely made it because this is all really great information. We hadn't even gotten to the rapid fire round of all of your questions. So I asked her your questions. We raced to the showing and this poor woman had to smuggle a burrito and eat it in the theater. I'm so sorry. By the way, we saw Murder on the Orient Express. It features a very bizarre mustache. I will give it that. So stay tuned for the first two-parter in Ologies history when we resume with your questions. So you now have a solid base. Tune in next week to hear Astro Katie address your questions, including, is there a name for the disorientation and panic one feels when considering the vastness of the universe? Uh, there is. Are any of the sci-fi movie methods to save the planet plausible? Or are we basically doomed if an asteroid uses us as a target? Uh, will the universe expand forever? What's the deal with multiverses? Are there aliens? And speaking of your submissions, I wanted to let you know, I totally see the reviews you write on iTunes, and it's so appreciated. Rating and reviewing and subscribing is free. It takes very little time, and it helps ologies stay up there in the science charts so more folks know about it. So thank you so much. Uh, Katie is at AstroKatie on Twitter, where she has approximately 1 billion trillion followers, and she is Academic Nomad on Instagram. So thank you to all you ologites for tweeting and gramming and memeing at us, and to all the folks on Patreon who make the show possible. It is currently... 4 a.m. on a Friday night, and I'm recording this to send it off to Stephen Ray Morris. He's going to help edit it, and your funding is making this dream project possible and putting a lot of facts in a lot of human minds. Um, you can also keep the show going by stopping at ologiesmerch.com. Um, I also want you to know that, yes, it's super late at night, and I'm recording this partly because uh, the mass of porridge that occupies the space where a brain would be, I had to spend a little longer trying to understand and explain these concepts than I thought. And uh, right now, as I record this, middle of the night, my neighbors had been blasting techno Christmas pop songs for four hours while I was learning about wormholes. The world feels very surreal. Also, congratulations to anyone who made it to the end of this episode. Man, you stuck it out. I appreciate that. Um... As a special thanks, I'm going to tell you a secret that no one in the world knows. Earlier tonight, I ate cereal I bought from a gas station, and I loved it. So if you listen to the end of this episode, feel free to holler at Ologies or Allie Ward. I'm sure I'll have a new secret for you next week at the very end, when we are back with Katie Mack's Q&A. 
So until then, ask smart people dumb questions because they love it. And we're just tiny meat blobs on a dust speck. So let's just live. Can we live? Okay, bye bye. Pachydermatology, homeology, cryptozoology, lithology, nanotechnology, meteorology. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 